Okay, so here's my um, presentation of Louis XIV. This is an overview. Um, and the focus of this overview is going to be Versailles, because um, if you say Louis XIV to anybody um, who knows history, or even if you were to say the words Louis XIV to somebody in France, the immediate association that would come to their mind um, is the Palace of Versailles. So uh, most of this overview is going to concentrate on Versailles, and then to supplement uh, that, you have the now required text uh, on Versailles uh, to help with that uh, supplementing process. Okay, so we're going to look at Louis XIV. We're going to ask, is he an instigator of high culture or a megalomaniac? If you're not sure what megalomaniac means, probably best that you look it up. It's an important part of this process, and again, uh, it's, it's not one of the formal accusations against him, uh, but it has come up in the process of uh, this um, arrest and trial and sentence that has been laid down on Louis. Is he a criminal or is he a great king? Is he a petty tyrant or is he a worthy ruler? Drive France deep into debt? And did he commit other offenses against his people? These are the, some of the questions that we're asking here. And these are some of the questions that you're dealing with in your friend of the court brief. Okay, so just, uh, and again, this is available to you in the download, just some quick things about Louis factual type uh, information. Um, he took the sun as his symbol and he was often quoted as saying, l'état c'est moi. He didn't feel himself the head of state, he felt himself the state. I am the state. I don't rule over France, I am France. This is the literal meaning of l'état c'est moi. And he becomes associated with this particular phrase. He reigned for 72 years, which is actually extraordinarily long. It's the longest in all of Europe. Um, and uh, by the way, you'd have to also believe that in a time when the average lifespan was maybe about 40, for him to live that long was, was extraordinary in and of itself. To reign as king that long uh, was even more extraordinary. So you want to take that into consideration as you're thinking about him. Now, <clears throat> at the time that he, prior to his reign, there was a body in France called the Estates General, made up of members of the clergy, the church, the nobility, uh, the merchant class, and people of well-to-do means. And this Estates General had traditionally been a body that had advised the king on matters of state. But during his 72-year reign, Louis did not once call a meeting of this Estates General. He simply ignored it altogether and ruled the state from Versailles and in an absolute way. In other words, all power was absolutely uh, assumed by Louis in the form of, him, of himself, and again, the assumption is l'état moi, I am the state. He expanded the bureaucracy, which is all of the offices of the state itself, and used that expansion of the offices of state to turn France into a modern power, and it was quite a power. As I will say later on in this, um, he actually turns France into the envy of all of Europe, 
and French manners and French uh, customs become the customs of Europe. People begin to eat like the French eat and speak like the French speak, and even French itself becomes the sort of language in common of all of Europe. He also uh, used royal officials to collect taxes, recruit soldiers, and to carry out his policy. So you're starting to see the emergence of the modern ruler in the form of Louis XIV. Okay. It's not a part-time ruler, he's a full-time ruler, and uh, to call him a micromanager is to make a judgmental statement, uh, but you can imagine that this, in this assumption of absolute power, uh, he had assumed the right to be a micromanager, but in fact Louis was the kind of manager who had his fingers in every pie. Every little decision that got made uh, emanated from him and was carried out through his intendants, these appointed officials. He also created the strongest army in Europe. This is the first time that you see a so-called standing army. Prior to this time, most armies would have been formed because there was some kind of conflict. And once the conflict was over, the battle was over, the war was over, the army would be disbanded. People would go back to their farms and, and to their villages and, uh, and life would, would go on. Louis formed a standing army, um, which obviously was quite costly to the state because you have to pay these soldiers to be part of the army on a permanent basis. And he really sets the tone in all of Europe for history from that point forward of standing armies that would be part of that state process. And he used the standing army to enforce his policies at home and also to try and expand France's boundaries to increase the size of the nation state. All right, so if you go to Versailles, which is about 12 miles southeast of Paris, you walk through the gates and the first thing that you see is Louis. Nobody looks down on Louis. Louis looks down on everyone. And as you pass through the entranceway, as I did uh, back in 1990, this is what you're faced with here, this enormous bronze statue of Louis in full regalia. So 1638 to 1715, and he's considered the Sun King. And off we go. So here is a very famous portrait of Louis. Um, this portrait is an important primary source because it gives you uh, insights into or provides a window into uh, what the monarchy looked like and how they carried themselves as we develop this time of uh, absolutism, the age of absolutism. So here's the man in his mink cape. Um, you can see it looks almost like a, like a comforter that's been uh, thrown over his shoulders. Um, you've got these little black dots here, which I learned are tiny little tufts of mink hair. And so, but don't hold that against him now, just because he killed a few mink to get little tufts of hair in there, doesn't mean that he has to be beheaded. Ha ha. Anyway, okay, so here he is. Um, you can see that in his pose and the way that he carries himself, that this is a man who's fully assumed the power of, of, that, of this royal throne. And here you also see the, uh, uh, the assumption of that uh, divine right that uh, he assumed, that his throne uh, came to him from God himself. Um, you can see the traditional use of the sword as an indication of nobility. 
And also you kind of get a feeling here that this was a very big man. He was, in fact, a very big man. He was well over six feet tall. He towered over his fellow Frenchman. And uh, he was large and he was a prodigious eater. Uh, he was infamous for the feasts that he would uh, mow his way through. He, when he ate, he would gather his nobility around him. They didn't eat with him. They gathered around him and watched him eat. These are all facts that I'm presenting you with. Um, and he was known to work his way through, uh, you know, 14 or 15 courses, uh, taking a little bit of each. Um, so he had a very healthy appetite for life. And as you'll find out, there are many elements of that healthy appetite for life. Okay, so the history of Versailles, very, very brief. And again, um, you've already uh, got this on your PowerPoint, so you don't need to re record all of it. But Versailles starts out as a very rough royal hunting lodge in the early 1600s. And in 1643, Louis began to modify the lodge into a chateau. Um, and then in 1678, um, in the third phase of modifications, he used about 30,000 laborers and craftsmen to build Versailles into what you know it to be today. Um, and then in 1682, when Versailles was finished, he moved the seat of power, the royal throne, from Paris to Versailles. And in the late uh, 1700s, when the monarchy ended, the furnishings were sold and the palace was turned into the museum it is today. And um, like Ilani Palace, some furnishings were returned even as late as the 1900s. Um, there's a st story about Ilani Palace that I think uh, kind of helps illustrate this. There's a woman uh, living in the Midwest who was one of those people that loved going to garage sales. And at a garage sale, she found a beautiful bedside table made of uh, a nice grained wood. And she purchased it for five, ten dollars or something like that and took it home and had it um, sitting next to her bed, her coffee table, nightstand. And one night she was watching PBS and saw a show called Lilio Kalani, Hawaii's Last Queen. And in that show, they did a whole section on Iolani Palace. And as she was watching it, they zeroed in on a bedstand that was King Kalakaua's nightstand next to his bed in the palace. And she went into shock because she realized that the nightstand sitting next to her was the nightstand that she was looking at that came from Iolani Palace. When the palace was, when the monarchy was gone in, in 1893, those furnishings were sold off. And somehow this particular Kalakaua nightstand ended up in a garage sale in the Midwest, and she had it. And amazingly, she did the right thing. She sent it back to Iolani Palace, where it is today. So that kind of gives you an idea of how Versailles was full of all kinds of stuff, and then it all sort of disappeared. And then over 200 years, France has been attempting to pull it all back into Versailles so that they can recreate what the uh, palace looked like. Okay, so if you, as you come into uh, past the statue and into Versailles, one of the first themes that you notice is symmetry. And symmetry really connects with this idea of absolute authority that this is not a palace that has lines going off in different directions and, well, we'll just let it unfold the way it wants to unfold. This is the control of image. And using the new linear perspective that comes out of the Renaissance and the vanishing point, you can see here that this is an extremely symmetrical place. All of the lines, the vanishing points, all of the windows, everything very carefully arranged, everything just so. And the picture that emerges is one of total control. 
Okay. Another theme as you come a little bit closer into the horseshoe that is the uh, uh, entrance to the palace is the theme of time. Everywhere you go in Versailles, you find clocks. And those clocks are all synchronized. And so what emerges out of this is the symmetry of time and the control of time. And in fact, by the end of what I'm talking about here, about Versailles and about Louis, it'll be quite clear to you that there really was very little that he thought he couldn't control. Even time itself could be controlled. Everything synchronized in that way. But it really jumps out at you as you go through the palace. Now, when you go into the palace and look out, you see that same symmetry framed in the window itself. There's nothing that's sort of askew in this place. There's nothing that's unbalanced or out of place. Everything is arranged just so. All the lines straight, everything's symmetrical. Whether you're inside looking out or outside looking in, everything is arranged in that just so symmetrical way. Okay. Here you see one of the many fireplaces, and there are many of them in Versailles. And a couple of comments about this. First of all, again, the clock. There are clocks everywhere in the palace. Second, everything is very symmetrically framed. And even though it's a museum today and obviously the fireplace is not being used, you can imagine that while he was in the palace over those many years, that everything was arranged in, in that way. And even when you look into the mirror and you see the vanishing points in the lines, and even if that line is on the diagonal, everything is still just so. Everything is arranged just so. The two vases here, and then you look also at the chandelier in the back, and one of the, the themes that emerges out of this is the Baroque. And the Baroque is defined as bright and busy and complex. So you'll see this sort of meshing of the Baroque and of the symmetrical together in the palace to create a very unified theme that really represented what Louis believed to be the monarchy. L'état c'est moi, I am the state. Okay, you also notice as you go through the palace that the heraldic symbols of Louis are everywhere. And the heraldic symbols of Louis are, this, are the heraldic symbols of France. In other words, there's that meshing together of Louis and France to where they blur together to become one. So on every doorway and every window, every frame, you see this symbology of the royalty of France. It, it, you just can't get away from it, obviously, in the palace. That's a part of the experience there. Okay, one of the most remarkable places in the palace is the Hall of Mirrors. And the Hall of Mirrors, so you have to imagine that the, basically Versailles is like a giant horseshoe and at the back end of the horseshoe is, uh, that connects the two wings of the palace together. It's more complex than that, but um, in that basic horseshoe shape, in the bottom end of the horseshoe, the back end of the horseshoe, is the Hall of Mirrors. This is truly an extraordinary place. Um, not, I mean, not the least of which here is the, is the you know, barrel vaulting, the Baroque style, the molding, everything is, is gilded, everything is, painted, everything is arranged, the parquet floor, um, the, the extremely uh, ornate chandeliers and all that. But it's the Hall of Mirrors. It's these floor-to-ceiling mirrors that go all the way down the length of this 150-foot hallway that really jump out at you. So 
for Louis, the Hall of Mirrors was really sort of the central place of his existence because every day when court was held, Louis would move through his court, which is his nobility assembled. And, uh, you know, it's sort of simple to explain it this way, but it kind of captures the sense of it, that the idea of the mirrors is everybody is looking at Louis, but everywhere Louis looked, he saw himself in these mirrors. So there's a constant kind of reinforcement going on of the centrality of Louis. Um, for you as a guest in Versailles coming in as a visitor, it's actually a little disconcerting to every, every time you turn your head, you're looking at yourself, floor to ceiling in some way, shape or form. And it's quite an extraordinary place. And uh, the Hall of Mirrors has been used throughout history as a place where people have signed treaties that have ended wars twice, that's been done. Um, and other sorts of important state events. It has that kind of uh, feel to it. So here you get a better view of the mirrors themselves as they go all the way down floor to ceiling, the length of the hallway. And you start to get also a feeling for the sheer size and scope of this place. So see these, these are candelabras here. So your normal candelabra that you pull out at Thanksgiving is like about this high with a little candle in it. This is a candelabra that's about eight feet high. And each of these is gilded. So they have gold leaf all the way around it. It starts to become almost a little overwhelming after a while. I mean, you probably experienced that when you were there that room after room, it's just enormous. And hey, you haven't even gone outside yet and seen all of the gardens and the fountains that are outside, okay? All right, so millions of people visit Versailles every year. I love this picture because, well, look at the difference between the girls and the boys. The girls are all sitting and they're paying very close attention to their teacher. The boys sitting here going, I am bored out of my mind, get me out of here. Uh, what am I doing in this place? Uh, this kid's sort of like uh, looking off into the distance and all of that. But see these girls right here? They're paying attention like little girls do. Anyway, millions of people visit Versailles. So I think the point that you pull out of this is that the French, this is really like the iconic place in France for the French. It means so much to them. The French travel to Versailles by the millions to see the palace in the same way that we travel to Washington, D.C. To, to see the Capitol and the White House and the Lincoln Memorial. This is something special to them. And you would want to take that into consideration when you're thinking about Louis and his place in history. Okay. So imagine the place when it was occupy, occupied and absolutely full of furniture and full of people and all the things that make a place livable. And so here you see some examples of that piece of furniture. Look at this armoire back here, very ornate. And again, the gold leaf. Look at the paintings with their extremely uh, ornate frames. But what you would have imagined here also is that these pieces of furniture are not factory produced. These are handmade pieces of art produced by artisans, each individually produced. So you would have to have imagined that over the couple of decades that it took to build the palace, Louis was employing many, many artisans to do this work. And they weren't working for free. These were paid artisans who came in. They painted the paintings. They built the frames. They built 
um, the furniture. They did everything that was uh, necessary to turn this place into a palace. So in a sense, he was sort of France's chief artistic employer during his reign because of the gravitas of Versailles itself. Something to consider as we move forward. So he provided an opportunity for people to express themselves through the many kinds of crafts and arts that you see. Okay, so note the woodwork here. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. It's overwhelming after a while. You see so many examples um, as you go through the palace of this kind of very, very special woodwork. Would draw your attention to this bookcase here. What I found out about this particular bookcase is that these are just the spines of books. They're not really the books themselves. Um, and that what this is is actually a door that revolves. So behind all of the walls and below the floors in Versailles is a vast network of hallways that would have connected the servants with the people, with the nobility uh, and Louis living in the palace. So the idea would be that you wouldn't be walking down a hallway or into a room and a servant would come walking in uh, from some other far place with a tray that had tea and, and some pastries or something on it. The person could literally appear out of the wall, place the platter down on the table and disappear back into the wall again and then head through the latticework and down into the basement where the kitchens are. So there are really two worlds in Versailles. There's the world of the nobility and there's the world of those who serve the nobility. And that was an invisible world. It was a world that was underground. But what an incredibly vast and complex world it must have been, given the size of the palace and the number of people who were living in it. Okay. So here's a guest bed. And if this is a guest bed, well, got to imagine what the master bedroom looked like. So this is a guest bed in the Baroque style. Obviously busy, bright, complex, and you can see how you know the canopy actually matches the uh, the wallpaper behind it. Um, extremely ornate, and you see example after example after example of this throughout the palace. It's quite amazing. But again, this is only a guest bed. As you move through the palace, you see that one of the things that Louis did was to uh, put his nobility up on the walls in the form of portraits. And those portraits would have been painted by artists who were commissioned to do this work. So again, he's an employer of artists and he's also a person who instigated the development of portrait art. Why put your nobility up there? Well, it kind of goes back to the idea of moving the throne from Paris to Versailles. And it kind of taps into that Machiavellian notion uh, it is better to be feared than loved it's better to have your nobility nearby than to be plotting against you in Paris. So the idea was to bring anybody who was anybody down to Versailles and park them in the palace, make them a part of Louis's court, but then they're there that you can keep an eye on them, um, you can avoid scheming. And he must have been successful at this because of the length of his reign. He was, you know, there you go, all the way up until 1715. Also would uh, have you note again the size of the mirror and the whole notion of busy, bright, and complex, which is the Baroque there. Okay, here's uh, one of the paintings that you'll find on the ceiling. This is The Last Judgment, uh, and it's in the Baroque style. And there's a couple things about the Baroque style that you would pick up. First of all, it tends to be sort of triangular, that things tend to rise up to the top, 
there's a sense in the Baroque of, of lifting up to the heavens and that the light is up above in addition to the busy and the bright and the complex. And there's just so much going on in this painting. Unlike much of Renaissance painting in which um, you would find things to be more sort of like snapshots, but not necessarily with so much movement in the painting. So as we transition from the Renaissance into the Baroque, into the 1700s, um, you start to see more of that uh, style of movement um, and that bright and complex kind of composition there. Okay. Everywhere that you go in the palace, the Sun King is present everywhere. In the symmetry, in the control of time, in the clocks, in the Baroque style, and also in Louis himself, presented everywhere in the statues um, and in portraits. And there's a couple things that I would want to say about this particular statue of Louis. First of all, he's not dressed like he was dressed in the portrait that you saw in the very beginning. As you look at this for long enough, you realize that he's actually dressed like a Roman emperor. And he has the shield next to himself right there. And he's got the staff that he's leaning on. And really the only thing that would make him still Louis in this case is the wig. Otherwise, he's a Roman emperor through and through. So to imagine yourself to be the reincarnation of the Caesars, of the great Caesars of Rome, would be to correctly imagine that he saw France as the reemergence of, of the old empire of Rome, and that he would be one of those absolutely controlling but benevolent dictators who would lift France up to the great glories that Rome experienced back around the time of Augustus in the time of, uh, of Christ in the year zero up through 400 AD. Of course, this is a bust of Caesar Augustus, the greatest of the Roman emperors. Uh, I don't know who this is a bust of. Maybe this is um, some other notable aristocratic woman or maybe even his, uh, his wife. But also would draw your attention to the marble here, which is Italian marble. It's busy and bright and complex. And uh, when you look at the scale of the palace itself, and there's a lot of marble in the palace, you would have to imagine that from all over Europe, resources to build the palace came. So Italian marble from Italy and certain kinds of stone from other places, artists from here, there, and everywhere would have traveled to be a part of the process of building the palace. Okay. Notice the chandelier here. And these chandeliers back in the time of Louis obviously would have burned candles. So one of the major problems of the palace in the early days would have been soot that comes off of candle smoke. Um, so there would have been a vast cleaning crew that would have kept the place clean. Uh, today, those candles are now electric, so they burn uh, very brightly in the evening. I was there late in the afternoon. It's quite remarkable when the natural light goes down and the electronic candle light comes up. And again, just look at the sheer size of these paintings. They're enormous. And they reflect the size and scope of Versailles and also of Louis's sense of his own monarchy. Okay, here's the Queen's bedchamber. And what's missing from this picture is that you would have imagined coming out and then going across and going back again would have been sort of a little fence um, that this area would have been 
kind of fenced off, cordoned off, and that the queen, uh, either going to bed or waking up in the morning, would have been attended by her servants, and that that process of going to bed and or waking up was a lengthy process. In fact, uh, it, was, it has been very well documented, Louis's own process of going to bed and waking up, that his getting out of bed in the morning would take a couple of hours. That, in the, that he would get up and he would be dressed and he would do his thing, he would do his toilette, so to speak. Uh, nobility were invited to carry the chamber pot out and dispense with it because that was part of the honor of serving Louis. Uh, then he would have been dressed, he would have had the whole wig process to go through, um, the makeup that was put on, the whitening of the skin, and then having breakfast and so on. So maybe by 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning he's ready to carry out the duties of state. Um, and then going to bed at night was a, a similar process. So there's a tremendous amount of ritual involved here in attending the king, day in and day out. And same thing with the queen. Okay, here's uh, uh, one of the paintings that you'll find in the palace, and I'm putting them in here from time to time to kind of remind you of the Baroque style. There's that sort of triangular feel to it, the toilette of Venus, um, and you see that there are both elements of the Renaissance and the coloring, and uh, also the, the human the interest in the human form, that sense of humanism, uh, and also of reaching back into antiquity for this um, Greek theme but also in the Baroque where things are starting to get more busy and bright and complex. And again, just sometimes as the art person who's getting to know the elements of style, there are little things that tip you off to a particular style. Like for example, uh, the Renaissance interest in musculature and in human anatomy and the over-exaggeration of that that you saw with Michelangelo. Look at her left knee. That's the knee of an NFL football player not the knee of a delicate Greek goddess. That's a knee I would love to have, frankly. It's a very muscular knee. And look at her calf, the way that it's drawn up. It's like the, you know, I mean, that's Lance Armstrong's calf right there. So it tips you off to that overemphasis of the human form that you found in the Renaissance. Okay, that's the toilette of Venus. All right. Again, we find the Baroque in the ceiling decor. So this is just a typical corner in the palace, and there are thousands of these corners. The molding is more complex almost uh, than anything that you've got anywhere around you today. Just the molding. And the molding also goes up into that sort of Gothic style where the ceiling has a keystone to it, and all the parts converge in the ceiling. So you would have have to have imagined the artisan work that was going on here, that the element of detail is quite extraordinary. And we also start to see the transition into the next style beyond the Baroque, which is the Rococo. And the Rococo took the Baroque a step further and assumed that there was no square inch that could be left undecorated in some way, some way shape, or form. So the Rococo is even more decorative than the Baroque is. And the more detail that you put in, the more busy it became. And frankly, for me and my personal reaction to art, once we get to the Rococo, it starts to get just too busy. There's too much going on. I tend to like the simple, uh, but 
This is just a reflection of what's happening to art in the time of Louis. Okay, so here's a painting uh, that shows the royal court in action. This would have happened every single day. Of course, at the center of the painting is Louis, and even in this painting and with these many figures, you can see that he's a large man, and he occupies the, the, lighting, the lighting central of this painting. So he's sitting at his desk, and this would have been the typical thing that happened every day. People would approach, a problem would be solved, he would issue some sort of mandate or edict of some sort, and what emerges out of this whole process of this whole story of Louis is that he was intimately involved in almost every decision that happened throughout the kingdom, right down to the, to the minute level. I'm, I'm reminded of a story uh, that was told about Jimmy Carter that um, his was partially a failed presidency because he couldn't deal with the big picture. He was too obsessed with the small things, even down to the fact that every morning he approved and organized the White House tennis court schedule who got to play on the tennis courts that day. Um, and that his obsession with those kinds of details distracted him from other more important things that were going on. So Louis is characterized as being one of those people, one of those monarchs who dealt with detail um, at that level. All right, um, what we've been dealing with so far is the inside of the palace, but now we're going to go outside. So a typical, day in the life of Louis would have been to do his royal work in the palace and then to spend some time out in the grounds if he was on the grounds or if he was in the palace, if he wasn't traveling or away, away at war. And the picture that emerges out of this is one of um, extravagance. So there were a number of things, oops, oh boy. reminding me. Okay, so there were a number of activities that he would have participated in when he was uh, uh, outside of the palace. There was the royal hunt, which I've always found very interesting. This is a giant gathering of people, many of whom are on horseback, all for the sole purposes of chasing down a single fox and that fox would uh, give, hopefully, the royal hunt a merry chase and would go across field and dale and would jump over fences and would take all day long and then eventually the dogs and the horses and the men would run down that little fox and he would be captured and that was a successful day. In fact, uh, there's a notation in, uh, in one of Louis XVI's diaries, all, it's a single word, he, he, he had noted that he was going out on the hunt, and when he comes back from the hunt, his diary has one word. It just says, nothing. In other words, nothing was caught. Nothing happened on the hunt. That's the way he described it. But of course, here, note Louis is the central figure on the white horse, and then the whole extravagance of going off on this hunt itself. It's one of the activities that would have happened. Okay, uh, backtracking for just one second, uh, Louis... Uh, as I said, he had uh, a prodigious appetite, and that included women. Um, he had many, many, many illegitimate children by various uh, noble women. Uh, but the sources tell us that he took very good care of them, all of his illegitimate children. Um, and he kept them near him in the palace, 
and they were part of the court. Uh, this is uh, Maria Mancini, his very first love. He didn't marry her, but when he was very young, he was really a teenager when he came to power, um, she was his first love, and this is just a portrait of him. So I, I, I won't say any more except to say that his appetite was larger than life and it included all of those things that are stereotypically part of the nobility. Okay, so part of what he did outside was to spend time in his gardens. You've been, right? And it, you actually got lost in those gardens, apparently. Um, it's pretty easy to do because they occupy about 100 acres of land and they extend as far as the eye can see. And so right here at the palace, you have this sort of mini lake and you start to see emerging out of this mixed themes of antiquity, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, sometimes all mixed together. Um, but what you also see is you emerge out into the gardens and imagine him, Louis himself, moving around in the gardens is the control of nature. So here we see, this is just a, a, a vase, you know, a, a for a, a planter, basically. And you have these two cherubs that are going to be watching eternally the growth of this particular plant that's in this. And your eye is kind of drawn to these vigilant cherubs. But I want your eye to go behind. And what you see behind is this emerging theme of the control of nature. There was nothing that couldn't be controlled, even nature itself. You could shape nature in various ways. So this idea, I don't know how much you've been paying attention to what's going on on campus here, but, and just between you and me, don't use this phrase anywhere outside this classroom, but Mrs. Hugo's husband is beginning to reveal himself as a bit of a Louis XIV fascist freak controller of nature. Have you noticed that? Everything is arranged just so now. When Mrs. White was here, Pots would be here and there, a couple broken, you know, a little weed growing up and all of that. Since Mrs. Hugo has occupied that office and her husband, who's a landscaper and a fireman, has arrived on the scene, you start to see everything is like shaped, like that whole thing that got built up where she parks her car, the wall and the plants. Notice that all the plants are arranged symmetrically. It's almost as if he had a tape measure out and he's measuring the distance between the plants. Yeah. He did. I saw him do it. I've seen him do it all around campus. Look at what happened on the back side of the, of the new, or of the uh, basketball court back there. All that wild and crazy how tree, boom, gone, cut down. The how arbor, which was growing up in the air everywhere, boom, all got cut. It's like it got a military haircut, right? So you see that emerging, and I'm actually hoping that he keeps his mitts off my little native garden back here because, you know, I think he's going to come in and like everything, you know, we're going to have to dig up this plant and move it over here because it's got to be 36 inches away from the other plant or something like that. I think the guy's a little Louis XIV person walking around. Anyway, there you go. Control of nature. Now, you could also imagine that the, I mean, obviously control of nature, look at these poor evergreen trees. I mean, they've been literally forced into growing as cones. I mean, they're trimmed right down to the, to the very, you know, leaf and all of that. But the joke is that it wasn't just shaping nature, that you could actually control nature right down to when things actually emerged out of the soil. 
So these are daffodils, and you know daffodils, they come up uh, sort of sometime in the spring when they feel like it's right. You know, is the temperature good? I'm underground. Feels kind of warm up there. I'm going to burst out of the ground and I'm going to flower. I'm a daffodil. You can imagine Louis going, no, you come up on March 13th at 8 a.m. Not 8.01 and not 7.59. This is the kind of control that emerges uh, in any study of Louis. And of course, plants could be moved so nature really becomes like art. You can move things around to create certain kinds of compositions. And the composition itself looks Baroque because it's busy and bright and complex. Here's an example of this merging of themes that I was talking about here. You have the Egyptian Sphinx and the little cherub here riding the back of the Sphinx, rather an odd combination. And again, you see the control of nature behind in the background. Okay. Now, one of the things that Louis had to, to deal with while he was at Versailles was keeping the nobility busy. And if they're not really in power, but if they're a part of the court, then uh, you're going to have to entertain them in order to keep them busy. And uh, his ability to entertain the nobility is legendary, and it'll be the subject of the film clip that we see uh, tomorrow, actually, before you dive into the voices that you're going to be reading tomorrow from Vatel. Um, so this is actually an extension of the canal that goes out from the palace. And you can imagine that every kind of entertainment uh, was available to the nobility. And in fact, uh, much of what we know as entertainment, um, opera, symphony, uh, presentation of uh, different kinds of themes at different parties, would have emerged out of this time. But it's part of what was happening at Versailles day in and day out. Okay, so imagine that Louis is out uh, and he's moving around in his gardens. And imagine that as he comes out of the palace, he's looking off into the distance. Now, this is just my interpretation. I'm not drawing from any scholarship. But I would imagine that, that Louis looked off into the distance and saw a vanishing point. And you know that a vanishing point is not an end point. It's actually a vanishing point. It's an infinite point that the lines continue to go and go, not because the lines come together, but because the lines are actually parallel. It's an illusion. And so what he's looking out at here is the vanishing point, which is the never-ending reign of Louis. Get me on that? That he's looking out and seeing himself almost in the way that the Romans saw themselves. They never imagined that the Roman Empire would come to an end. And Louis probably didn't imagine that he would ever come to an end or the French monarchy would come to an end. So what you see is a reflection of that in the way that this is constructed. It just goes as if to go forever. And every time that he came out into the gardens, I think that this idea might have been reinforced. Now, one of the innovations of these gardens are the fountains. And in fact, Louis is the instigator of hydraulics. Hydraulics being the, the movement of a piston through a tube to push water up into the air. Now, this wasn't done through gas power or any kind of modern energy source. It would have been done through water pressure itself. But these fountains are quite spectacular. So where did all this water come from? It came from the countryside. It was routed towards Versailles. And it ends up in the fountains here. Now, the hydraulics were not strong enough for all the fountains to be running at the same time. So there's a scholarship that describes Louis moving from fountain to fountain, 
when one fountain, uh, uh, you know, that was uh, fountaining in front of him, uh, that, that's the hydraulics that are at work. When he was finished in that area, he would move off to another fountain. As he's walking towards the next fountain, this fountain is shut off and his army of attendants, all invisible out there in the gardens, would turn on the next fountain, he would move from one to the other. Um, and that's actually what happens when you're at Versailles. They're not all running at the same time. They're actually on a schedule now. So some fountains will be on at certain times of the day, um, simply because there isn't enough water and pressure to run all of them at the same time. But this is where court would have been held outside. So if you can imagine uh, Louis looking out of the palace, He's really the master of all that he sees. And there is nothing that would deter him from that idea, except perhaps a, a, a loss or two in a battle or a war. Uh, but uh, that would have been uh, something quickly put aside. So here you even see that the trees are bent to shape them into a hallway. How do you do that? Mm, actually, it's pretty easy. I've done it myself. You just hang weights on a tree and make it bend a certain way and eventually the layers uh, of the, the Cambrian layers and the different layers of the, of the bark stretch and the trees are bent over. Uh, and so we would have wanted to imagine that, that all kinds of things would have happened out, out here, that this would have been uh, quite a place at the time that it was occupied by Louis and the nobility and then after him. You would also notice that the uh, neoclassical theme is alive here. This notion of the new classical, it's a paradox, a compressed paradox. Something that's classical is by definition not new. But neoclassicism is that Renaissance notion of the rebirth of that which is old. And here you see obviously the Roman columns and the, the grandeur of it all. But what my eye is drawn to is this birdbath. This is the mother of all bird baths. And there's not just one of them. They're here and here and here and here and here. So if I were a bird, I would move to Versailles because I would love to have a bird bath like that. Just my opinion. Neoclassicism. Okay, so we're, we've moved around the gardens. We've been out and about. Uh, and we've come back towards the palace and we're looking back at the, the entire facade of the palace and we're seeing Triton with his, with his uh, spear, uh, the sea god in repose there. And we're looking at this lake that's outside the, uh, of the front facade of the palace and imagining again that keeping the nobility occupied was a major uh, part of what happened at Versailles. And we would also go back to this room to remind ourselves that uh, the Sun King was ever present. And this is a straight on view. The other view was from the side. And when you see it straight on, you see this right here. That here's Louis as one of the great Roman Caesars, but behind him is literally the light shining out over the back of his head in gilded architecture here, framed perfectly and symmetrically in Italian marble. Uh, forever. Okay, notice again the candelabras and how ornate they are. Look at this gold gilded table right there. Look at the doors themselves 
it's all rather overwhelming at times. Okay, so again, just to reinforce this point, that the, the notion of the, the monarchy that would never end is really captured in this vanishing point here. This is looking out into the gardens and the gardens are the fountains and are all spread out from side to side and then there's the royal hunting grounds out there to the right and to the left and the canal that goes off into the distance. Again, the grounds about 100 acres all told. Uh, it's a place that you could spend a whole day at uh, and his presence is felt throughout the whole process. This is a final look at the Hall of Mirrors before we finish up. Now, I'm going to finish up here with a few paintings by my personal favorite, Nicolas Poussin. Uh, I don't know why I became attracted to this particular painting, painter, uh, but I really enjoy him. So just for a brief moment, I'm going to give you a little sort of unscripted, spontaneous demonstration of what you're going to be doing at the end of term when you're up here uh, being the master of your particular artist. Um, there's something about the, the coloring of Nicolas Poussin that really attracts my eye. I'm, this is one of my favorite colors, revealing something personal to you here. This color right here uh, just absolutely attracts my eye. I'm also very interested in this particular blue, but I've, I've always felt myself sort of attracted to the Renaissance artists and the early Baroque artists because of their use of color. I like bright and, and bold colors, and you see that here. But what really gets me about this particular painting of the Madonna and the Christ child being attended is Joseph here. So poor Joseph, you know, poor guy, what a schlub. I mean, here he is the husband of Mary. And what happens? God says to Mary, you will give birth to my son and it will be an immaculate conception. You will become the Virgin Mary. Now, I don't know how I would feel if I were, you know, her husband at that point. I mean, you're, you're sort of shoved aside by God into the shadows. But the only thing that's sticking out is your foot right here. It just, it's just, Nicholas Poussin did something quite dramatic there. He reminds us of who Joseph is, that he's the shadow figure in history who gets sort of shoved off to the side by this whole story of the Immaculate Conception. And you see it over and over and over again, repeated in, by other artists and other paintings um, who deal with the same subject, that Joseph always seems to be in shadow. But here, made evident just by the foot sticking out, like, as if he's to say, don't forget me, I was part of this whole process too. Notice also the Baroque, how it comes up triangular, and also the neoclassical, the reaching back to these grand Roman and Greek themes. Okay, mm, this is called The Rape of the Sabine Women. And uh, I've been uh, very much attracted to this painting because it, it feels as if uh, it was taken with a high-speed camera. There's so much action going on here. And when the picture was taken, snap, it caught everybody frozen in a moment of very high energy. And you notice how everything sort of comes up into a point, but here's this very key figure up here. And you see the musculature, the coloration, the bright, the busy, the complex, but the Renaissance and the sense of the vanishing point and also of the, the background themes that are Greek and Roman, but just the sheer energy of this thing 
So this goes all the way back into antiquity and Rome. And actually, you wrote about this, Tori, as uh, the introduction to your paper on the Romans, that this is when Romulus and Remus, uh, this is when, I can't remember which, is it Romulus, and his followers in the founding of Rome go off and they don't have women, and they grab the Sabine women and, and take them for their own. It's a moment of great violence and horror, and yet it's captured like a, a snapshot right here. And it very much attracts me in that sense, the daggers, the hand reaching out, and all of that. Okay. This is uh, also one of my favorite paintings called Rebecca at the Well. Um, again, same kind of thing going on here. There isn't anything different than before, except for one thing that I'll point out in just a moment. Again, you recall from Masters of Illusion, the use of the ball to create light and shade, although you wouldn't see a ball sitting on top of a pedestal like this. So he's really just playing with, with um, um, 3D perspective using light and shadow. And the scene that's tranquil but very Greek or Roman in the background. And then there's this simple scene of Rebecca coming to the well and talking to this guy. There's really nothing unusual about it except that my eye is drawn to her. This woman right here has one of those whatever kind of expressions going on. She is annoyed, in my mind, at Rebecca flirting with this guy at the well. Look at that expression. Look at the way the arm is put onto the hip like that. It just seems to sort of jump out at me as something very dramatic that's going on in the midst of everything else that seems to be so normal. As if she's saying, why are you talking to him and not me? Okay, then this is uh, called The Judgment of Solomon. Um, you guys all know the story. Two women who lay claim to the same child. One is the real mother, one is not. Um, they get into this dispute. They can't resolve the, dis the dispute, so they go to the, uh, the, the Jewish king Solomon to resolve the dispute. Out of this comes the wisdom of Solomon. And he says, well, I don't know who the child is, so I tell you what, we'll cut it in half. And each of you will get half. So here's the soldier drawing his sword, holding the baby, about to slice it in half. Why does Solomon do this? Because the real mother will say no. Don't do that. I give up the child. And the fake mother here is screaming at the real mother, saying, you're not the real mother. But she's been revealed as the fake mother, because only a real mother would say, no, don't do that. I'd rather give up my child than have my child killed. This is the wisdom of Solomon. But what a violent moment. It's as if in the next three seconds, he's going to whip that sword around and slice that baby right in half. His, his body is incredible. It's actually, it's, it's straight on like this, but it's actually coiled, as if he could somehow come out of that, and all the muscles of the stomach would cause the sword to go neatly and quickly like uh, a butter, like a knife through butter, through that child. Okay? And then finally, here's a self-portrait of Poussin. And that's how we bring this whole thing to a close. Okay, so this last slide, which you have available to you, lists the successes and the failures that are uh, standard out there. And you can account uh, for them through me and through this lecture. I've talked about them throughout, that he strengthened royal power, that he created an army that became the strongest in Europe, and France became the wealthiest state, and that French culture became the culture of all of Europe. Uh, but on the downside, his wars were disastrous and costly and everybody ganged up against him. And 
probably most importantly, the French Protestants, who are a very hardworking and industrious part of the economy, uh, were uh, persecuted and were, uh, had to flee France because Louis wanted France to be Catholic. So again, the control of even religion causes him to lose a major part of his economy through uh, the departure of the Huguenots.